Fran. She neglected to mention her own invaluable uh, presence at these colloquia. It gives me great pleasure to be here finally at St. John's. Uh, finally, I say, because when I was a high school student looking at colleges, this college was for me something of a temptation, an ideal, I think, in my mind at the time, an ideal of what a curriculum ought to be. Its design of great books and seminar dialogue seemed dedicated to the highest aspirations of inquiry and learning, questioning more than answers the ultimate reward. As it turned out, for me, St. John's was the path not chosen. Other pulls proved irresistible. Like a metal filing, I felt drawn to my magnetic north. I was attracted to New York City, where uh, my teacher, Leo Raditza, among others, uh, here now, but then at New York University. And really, the city itself, New York, gave shape to my view on the world. But a few of my friends, uh, the brainier ones I always thought, chose this path, the path you have chosen. Now in our sense, our paths intersect in the halls where my friends did much of their intellectual growing up. One of them, a companion of mine since pre-kindergarten days, but who has been so mentally deranged for the past 25 years, not by St. John's, but by his experience in the Vietnam War, a war in which he was an enthusiastic participant, uh, that there is little left in him to carry on the debates he once engaged in here. I offer these personal remarks first as an expression of my gratitude at being invited to speak at St. John's, which has long held a special allure for me, but also because the modern story of my childhood friend is in a continuum with the story of Virgil's Aeneid, where men are asked by a higher authority whether it be divine fate in Jupiter on Mount Olympus or our mortal leaders in Washington to sacrifice the self in light of a higher reward. I don't mean to belittle the Virgilian gods, a habit far too common in the present state of scholarship by such a comparison, or indeed to elevate Mr. Clinton to a status he surely cannot sustain. But the very disparity and the comparison allows reflection on the meaning of sacrifice for the worthy public good. But I, be, I veer a bit from my title, Roma Amor, Love and Empire. The first part, Roma Amor, a Roman play on words, as by a quirk of language, Amor, the Roman word for love, when seen in a mirror, spells Roma, a wordplay we call a palindrome, to describe, as you know, a word, a phrase, a sentence that reads the same way backward or forward. A man, a plan, a canal, Panama. One such palindrome, a nice crescendo leading up to Panama, but not very pleasing as a palindrome as it turns on the sea and the word canal. I don't have to tell you that palindrome comes from the Greek, palindromos, again running or running backwards. The one, a better one, I think, describes Napoleon after Waterloo. 
Able was I, ere I saw Elba, Elba, the island to which he was exiled. Much more pleasing because it turns on the R in air. Such phrases make it seem, peculiarities of the written language make it seem as if Napoleon's destiny was somehow already pre-inscribed in language. Like Narcissus looking in a reflection pool, the reflected image of the second half of the palindrome seems to reveal a hidden truth or essence of the first half. The earliest of palindromes dates to the Garden of Eden, when Adam, inventing language, introduces himself to his new helpmate. In English, of course, Madam, I'm Adam. Indeed, the name Eve itself is also a palindrome, attesting to the perfect state of language in the Garden of Eden. My nine-year-old daughter's favorite palindrome is go hang a salami, I'm a, I'm a lasagna hog. If you work that out. <laughs> and that turns, that's rather elegant in its way, it turns on the comma. Now, the Romans were fond of these word plays as well, but going one step further, as in the graffito, written on a street in a wall in Pompeii, dated to the year 79 AD, just before the city was covered in volcanic ash from Mount Vitruvius. This is a four-sided palindrome, and it goes Roma on the top, the graffiti, graffito reads this way, Roma on the top, and then off the R of Roma is Roma going down, and off the A of Roma is Amor, and at the bottom of the, of the uh, Vertical um, aroma is Amor going across. So you have Roma, Roma, Amor, Amor, north, south, east, west, all in this interlocking chain where you have not only the word play, but you have a wonderful visual image. And the visual image of, of Roma, Amor um, as a, um, the configuration of, of uh, social and erotic forces making something like a city enclosure. So they make in their, in their strange form uh, some of, uh, the image, perhaps, of the city itself. And this verbal play, this verbal cartoon, uh, is, of course, supported by myth, because Amor is the son of Venus. Venus is a complicated character, Venus being both the the irresistible sexual goddess, but she's also, as the mother of Aeneas, the tutelary protectress of Rome. So you have in this word play a reference to, or, or something that's supported by Roman mythology. Now this amor, this Roman amor, this graffito amor, is of course a very different notion of love than something like you find in Romeo and Juliet, where love breaks through walls. This armor with Roma makes walls, forming something like a fortress or a city. Now, how Virgil interprets this expression of popular culture is what interests me in this talk. And I will divide it into two parts. The first part I call Amor, Amor and Roma and Virgilian psychology. Not that I like the word psychology, but 
I couldn't think of a better one for this. The Pompeian image of a fortress-like love is not lost in the Aeneid. Aeneas makes explicit the equation between love and Rome in Book 4 of the Aeneid when at Carthage he bids farewell to Dido, or tries to bid farewell to Dido. And he says to her, if fate permitted me to lead my life by my own lights and compose my cares spontaneously, first of all, I should look after the city of Troy and the sweet remains of my people. Priam's great hall should stand again. But now it is great Italy that Apollo tells me I must seek after. Italy, the oracles order me to seize. There is my love, there is my country, hoc amor, haec patriest. Now, Virgil uses patria, not Roma, not as neat as the Pompeii palindrome. However, thinking back on book four of the Aeneid, Roma does not yet exist. The idea, however, is the same as what is suggested in the graffito, fatherland, empire, as love. For Aeneas, this is a love in its most impersonal form. And that's what I'd like to be speaking about tonight. This is a love in its most impersonal form, an idea more than a place, a city without a history, a city yet without names, without faces, or without, any, or without even physical presence. If Aeneas were free to choose, he would look to the familiar and rebuild the city of his past, the great city of Troy and the sweet remains of my people, as uh, he says in his own words. But he is forced by a dimly understood world historical destiny to associate Amor with a city that is but a vague idea, unfounded and as yet unnamed. Rome is an Amor without a body or a face, and defined by loss. Not only, of course, the loss of Troy, but also a, lo a loss that's harder to define. The grief we feel for the exchange we made of the freedom of the private self and the cares of the heart for what we call civilization. When Aeneas tells Dido his first wish is to re rebuild Troy, he has, in effect, already made another erotic choice, stripping himself of his Trojan clothing and his Trojan identity, taking on Carthaginian dress and building Carthage's walls. Seeing Aeneas so redefined, Jupiter sends Mercury to see Aeneas at Carthage. When the messenger arrives at the city, Straightway he attacks, continuo in wawet, a complete sentence, one of the shortest sentences in all of the Aeneid. Mercury's attack takes the form of verbal insult, calling Aeneas uxorius, a word difficult to translate, the adjective uxorius, from the noun uxor, or wife, so a man in his wife's shadow. Mercury's words are these, the beginning of them. Are you now setting the foundations for tall Carthage and building this beautiful city? You, a uxorious man? 
the adjective uxorious in the Latin tell is tellingly sandwiched between pulchrum and urbem. Pulchrum and urbem, beautiful city. Aeneas in his wife's shadow, surrounded by Dido's beautiful city. Mercury's words ooze with contempt and impatience and aim to emasculate personal desire. The god's blow strikes deep. Aeneas is struck dumb and becomes mindless. Amens. His hair bristles in terror. His voice lodges in his throat. He immediately prepares for departure, trying to sneak away from Carthage without saying a word to Dido. When she discovers him in these cowardly preparations to depart, he says that he was not bound to her by social contract. So in fact, he is not uxorious at all, not even married to Dido. His real amor is as the god revealed patria. But Mercury's attack also brings to the fore guilt feelings, images, and sounds which Aeneas repressed while he dallied with Dido in Africa. Visions of his father, he now reveals, have been haunting him up through all this time in book four while he's asleep. Things that we hadn't heard about. Also thoughts about his son have made for restless nights. Contrast between the sexual and personal love Aeneas chooses for himself with Dido and the amor he accepts from Mercury's intervention is starkly drawn. Instead of sexual love, political love. Instead of personal gratification, deferred gratification. When Dido pleads with Aeneas asking him when she says, if our love, noster amor, if our love, the personal noster, noster, battling Aeneas's abstract patria, she asks, isn't it strong enough to hold him in Carthage, when she asks this, she is described as a storm pressing upon him. And a quote from Fitzgerald's translation. Battered this side and that by her incessant pleas, he stood firm like a strong oak tree, toughened by the years when northern winds from the Alps vie together to tear it from the soil. The trunk shakes and leaves strew the ground, yet the tree grips among the rocks below. Its roots stretch as far down towards the abyss as its crest reaches up to the heavens. Deeply his brave heart grieved, but his will remained unshaken. Tears rolled down, but without effect. Whose tears? Aeneas's? Dido's? The poem doesn't say. The lack of pronouns in the present tense Tears roll down. It leaves open the possibility that we are to understand the tears as our own. Aeneas withstands the storm of her emotional plea by trying to remain unmoved on the outside. By Jupiter's command, he was holding his eyes steadfast and resolutely was pressing care under his breast. We can interpret the storm as being as much within Aeneas as outside. Deeply his brave heart grieved. A cultural amor pressing down a personal amor. The imperfect verb tense is tenebat, 
was holding his eyes steadfast, and Premebat was pressing care under his breast, stressed the continual effort needed for Aeneas to press down the care or the love stirring within. From our 20th century perspective, we might be tempted to interpret the transference of Amor from Dido to Roma in modern terms of sublimation or displacement. But this is far from Virgilian psychology. The recurrent and obsessive image in the Aeneid is not symbolic redirection of primal energy, but one of suppression or pressing down, as we have seen in the verb premeba, to press. The same verb describes Aeneas' suppression of feeling after the violent storm in Book One. The narrator speaks of him feigning hope in his look while speaking words of encouragement to the crew. Though sick with great cares, he presses grief deep in his heart. Whether it is love or grief, the psychology is the same. The exterior is a semblance, denying and concealing the true self within. Emotions are to be buried. This model applies equally well for the natural world. The scene is in book one, when Juno approaches Elus, the, the person who rules the winds, so that he might release the violent sea winds against Aeneas' ships. About those winds, the narrator says, here Fitzgerald's translation, here in a vast cavern, King Elus rules the contending winds and morning gales as warden of their prison. Round the walls they chafe and bluster underground. The din makes a great mountain murmur overhead. High on a citadel, enthroned, scepter in hand, he mollifies their fury. Else they might flay the sea and sweep away land masses and deep skies through empty air. In fear of this, Jupiter hid them away in caverns of black night. He set above them granite of high mountains, and a king empowered at command to rein them in. Here the violence of winds must be held in check by putting a mountain on top of them. The image of Elus contending, containing the winds is certainly intended to invoke an image of Rome. The controller of storms is called a king, a rex, sitting on a lofty citadel with scepter in hand, each detail suggestive of Jupiter, the scepter-holding king of the gods who sits, whose image sits in the temple on the arcs or Capitolium at the center of Rome. Elus presses down, it, the same verb again, the contending winds and moaning gales with political authority, imperium, the word for command that comes to mean empire. The relevance of Virgil's psychological worldview for the political arena, implicit in the Elus scene, is explicit a few hundred lines later in the same book. Jupiter concludes his prophecy about the success of the future Rome by describing the peace that will come at the end of the civil wars. Wars at an end, harsh centuries then will soften. Ancient Fides and Vesta, Quirinus with brother Remus, Quirinus is a, is a, a cult name for Romulus, with brother Remus, will be lawgivers. An amazing moment in 
in language when Remus, Romulus and Remus, who of course have the violent foundation of Rome, are here in the rewriting of history in this image of peace at the end, common lawgivers. History has to be forgotten in order for the myth to be realized, the myth of, the, the myth of this amor that Aeneas is asked to embrace. Uh, we'll be lawgivers grim with iron frames. The gates of war, and this is the part that reflects back on the mountains sitting over the winds. The gates of war will then be shut, as you probably read about in your, as you were discussing in your, in your seminar groups. Inside, unholy furor, squatting on cruel weapons, hands and chain behind him by a cruel, by a hundred links of bronze will grind his teeth and howl with bloodied mouth. As with Elis's mountain pressing down with Imperium, it takes technology, closed doors, and Roman religion to hold at bay the violence in man and in history. So Aeneas facing Dido, just to bring this uh, strand around, Aeneas facing Dido, Elis controlling the winds, Rome taming its violent past, all rely on a common remedy. Sexual love, storms, civil wars, all are part of the same roiling volcanic energy, destructive, contrary to Fatum, and the destiny of Rome, passions in need of a mountain or Rome's political sovereignty. Good government in the Aeneid is analogous to the weight of a mountain on our souls. Both necessary and good, the Aeneid may, one may infer from the Aeneid. But can this really be a good? The pervasiveness of the verb primo and the image of violent containment joins multiple levels of the Virgilian cosmos in a common psychology. Gods, nature, political orders, and the self are ruled by one prescriptive law of bearing within or enchaining disruptive forces for fear of what havoc they would wreak in the open air. While Freud, it's a big leap, but I'd like to now consider the Aeneid in the context of Freud. While Freud would not have agreed with the remedy of such a psychology, Virgil's suppression is not a recipe for disease, or perhaps is it, but Virgil's suppression, this, this, prem, this, this pervasiveness of pressing down, is not a recipe for disease in the Aeneid, but a solution. Freud would question such a solution, the Australian psychoanalyst would have admired the universality of the Aeneid's remedy. That is, that Virgil imagines a remedy which is pervasive throughout the universe, from self to political history to gods to nature. And this is something that Freud discusses late in his life when he looks back on it. And he says, I made the attempt in totem and taboo to exploit the newly won analytic insights for an investigation of the origins of religion and morality. The totem and taboo of 1912, followed by the future of illusion in 1927 and civilization and its discontents in 1930, he said that he came to realize, quote, ever more clearly that the events of human history 
the interactions between human nature, cultural development, and the precipitates of primeval experiences are only the reflection of the dynamic conflicts among the ego, id, and superego, which psychoanalysis studies an individual. The same events repeated on a wider stage. So there's in this, in Freud, as in, as in Virgil, there's this impulse to find a, a, that, the, that the psychology of the political order is, is, is identical in nature to the, to the control of the individual self, individual emotions. In the Aeneid, the stage includes the world of the gods and nature as well as human history. If the Freudian universe is devoid of gods and nature per se, Freud's distinctive vision of passion repressed by culture, any culture, not just Rome, offers a compelling commentary on the Aeneid. His theorizing about politics, especially in civilization and its discontents, makes the Aeneid seem like a poem of our age, understood in the same spirit as Freud and his shaping image of the human condition. Or perhaps conversely, we should say that Freudian psychology is still under the long cast of Virgil's shadow and the shaping influence of antiquity on later Western thought. While the Aeneid was written at the promise of a new beginning and Freud wrote in the face of Europe's darkest hour, in both we find the same bitten view about human nature and its necessary constraints. I would like to read a page from Civilization as Discontent, and it may be rough going if it's the first time you've heard it, so uh, bear with me and I'll try to read slowly. This is uh, Freud. The development of the individual seems to us to be a product of the interaction between two urges. The urge towards happiness, which we call egoistic, and the urge towards union with others in the community, which we call altruistic. In the process of individual development, egoistic development, the main accent falls mostly on the egoistic urge or the urge towards happiness, while the other urge, which may be described as a cultural one, is usually content with a role of imposing restrictions. But, in the process of civilization, things shift. Here, by far, the most important thing is the aim of creating a unity out of the individual human beings. It is true that the aim of happiness is still there, but it, in the civilizing process, is pushed into the background. It almost seems as if the creation of a great human community would be most successful if no attention had to be paid to the happiness of the individual. The development process of the individual can thus be expected to have special features of its own, which are not reproduced in the process of human civilization. It is only insofar as the first of these processes has union with the community as its aim that it need coincide the second process. Then he offers a metaphor. Just as a planet revolves around a central body, 
as well as rotates on its own axis, so the human individual takes part in the course of development of mankind. Take that as um, the development of mankind, the revolving around a central body, at the same time as he pursues his own path in life, revolving on his own axis. But to our dull eyes, the play of forces in the heavens seems fixed in a never-changing order. In the field of organic life, we can still see, that is in nature, we can still see how the forces contend with one another and how the effects of the conflict are continually changing. This is what's important to Freud, is this conflict. So also the two urges, the one towards personal happiness and the other towards union with other human beings, must, Freud underlines, must struggle with each other in every individual. And so also the two processes of individual and of cultural development must stand in hostile opposition to each other and mutually dispute the ground. The end of the Freud reading. And no less bleak a view than in the Aeneid, Freud insists that the struggle between the individual and the community of which he must necessarily be a part is inevitable and inevitably hostile, each side disputing the ground of the other. Freud is not writing in particular about the Aeneid, but what he thinks is the nature of human life and all cultures. But isn't it anachronistic isn't it an, and an anachronism to read Virgil through the eyes of a doctor living 2,000 years later? One is a poet telling a story about a founding hero. The other a theorizer about the psyche and politics writing in um, expository prose. One looks inward attempting to describe the psychological dimensions of the self. The other draws out the story on the canvas of divine history. But each author helps I think, explain the other. Virgil's theory of civilization, if we ought to use such a phrase for Virgil, like Freud's, presents life in society as an imposed, imposed compromise from without, hence as an essentially insolvable predicament. The very orders that work to protect the self from the self also produce its discontents. The Aeneid cannot help but ask the question as many modern scholars, especially American, have noted, the question that Freud asks, is the price too great, the demand of fate, for fate let's read civilization, the demand of civilization malicious in its constraints on love and happiness. And that's the end of my first part. In my second part, I'd like to attempt to expose not Freudian views, but how Virgil at, uh, in, in the Aeneid represents the struggle between passions and cultural constraints. And I shall begin with the disturbing habit of women in the first half of the Aeneid, of women, women Aeneas loves, uh, leaving him while he's weeping and speechless. They leave him with his mouth open uh, and they evaporate before, his, um, uh, before him as he tries to reach out to touch them. I'd like to look, go through that, that pattern for a bit. When Aeneas sees Dido in the underworld, for example, he tries to placate her with words, reversing the scene, uh, placate her, reversing the scene from book four when no tears moved Aeneas and he stood fast like an oak tree against a gale. 
If Aeneas was cowardly and shifty in Book Four in his efforts to escape Carthage, he expresses the depths of his emotions to Dido in the underworld, perhaps too late and too little. Here's what he says, uh, again in Fitzgerald's translation, somewhat modified. Among them, with her fatal wounds still fresh, Phoenician Dido wandered the deep wood. The Trojan captain paused nearby and knew her dim form in the dark. He wept and spoke tenderly to her, Dido, so forlorn. The story then that came to me was true, that life was extinct, that you had died by your own hand. Was I, was I the cause? I swear by heaven's stars, by the gods above, by any certainty below the earth, I left your shore against my will, my queen. The gods' commands drove me to do their will. As now they drive me through this world of shades, these moldy wastelands and these depths of night, and I could not believe that I could hurt you so terribly by going. Wait a little. Do not leave my sight. Am I someone to flee from? The last word destiny lets me say to you is this. Aeneas with such pleas tried to placate the burning soul. The narrator goes on. Savagely glaring back and, uh, and tears came to his eyes. The soul glaring back of Stido. But she had turned with glaze fixed in the ground as he spoke on, her face no more affected than if she were hard flint or Marpesian crag, and at length she flung away from him and fled her enemy. In contrast to Book Four, Dido is now the unmoved force, fixed forever in her burning anger. Though Aeneas speaks in tones of sorrow and self-blame, his words cannot jump across the divide of her unforgiving enmity or keep her from fleeing. He learns by her silence and withdrawal both that the past cannot be altered and that he is cut off from that past. There is no reconciliation through language of the hostility Freud outlined above between passions and cultural constraints. The scene with Dido in six cannot help but recall Aeneas' wife, Creusa, in book two, who deserts him at Troy. When he rushes from burning Troy at night in the confusion of the dying city, holding his son by the hand, shouldering aloft his father, who is himself holding the household gods, Creusa trails behind. Aeneas responding to his father's cry, run boy, run, here the Greeks come, I see the flame light on shields. Aeneas loses his wits and flees into the darkness. When he finally turns round to look for Creusa, she is nowhere to be seen. Losing his mind with grief, quem non incu sawa mens hominem umque deorum que. I don't know if you can hear that, but that's a line that runs over. That's a metrical line in the Aeneid, which runs over the hexameter, a hypermetric line. Aeneas, in his eagerness to get back to see Creusa, breaks out of the hexameter constraint. He 
races back into the burning city, crying out the name of Cryusa throughout Troy until she appears before him in the form of a ghost. And she says, what's to be gained by giving way to grief? So madly, my sweet husband, nothing here has come to pass except as heaven willed, nor is it fated that you take Cryusa, she mentions herself in the third person, you take Cryusa away with you now. The Lord of high Olympus forbids. She then goes on to prophesy the ordeal of long exile before he reaches the Tiber River with its gentle flow, where a new queen, she says, will be allotted for him. She bids him to banish his tear, and then she leaves. Farewell now, and guard the love, Amor, the love of our common child. Facing the image of Creusa, Aeneas has no voice. After delivering its message, the image slips into the tenuous air without waiting for a reply. Aeneas feels deserted. She abandoned me, he says, leaving him, and then he, of course, tries to reach out. And he says, she left me, leaving, leaving me speechless, weeping, wishing to say many things. Anything, multa, he says, anything, something, though he doesn't seem to quite know what it was he wanted to say. Three times, he says, I tried to throw my arms around her neck, three times in vain, enfolding nothing as the wraith slipped through the tender air like a fleeting dream. Creusa, Brent, you can read, Creusa here as the demands of Rome, leaves Aeneas gasping, casting words into empty air, trying to hold on to the past. Creusa is one of the few women in the Aeneid to have a sense of the divine mission that animates the poem. But unlike men, she enjoys this knowledge only in death. As she understands, and Aeneas has yet to comprehend, the shape of Pietas is a triad of father, son, and son's son. This is the message Creusa bears for her husband, Pius Aeneas, may be defined, she makes plain, as the figure who stands between Pater and Caeses and Puer Ascanius, the mortal thread linking past the future that shoulders the father and holds the son by the hand. But for Creusa to participate in Pietas means to be self-effacing. She talks about herself in the third person and she gives way to the second wife. On a pragmatic level, one may say that Creusa must vanish literally from the picture in order to make room for Aeneas to cement his future political alliances in Italy through marriage. But underlying that pragmatic need lies the implicit understanding that the family triad in the service of civilization is exclusively male. A biological unit, yes, but one that is paradoxically free of the female and cut free from the bonds of Amor. As is frequently noted, typically in the Aeneid, women do not have, or like Dido cannot keep, a sense of the divine. And we come to learn a male mission. Of the women in the poem, other than Creusa and Venus, only the Sibyl in her trances when she is forcibly seized by Apollo possesses knowledge of Rome's highest vision. For Cariusa, this knowledge is strangely impersonal, yet intimate, bound to Aeneas by their son, but cut off from him as she is part of the past. And she does not, that 
that impersonality, I think, is expressed in that her departure, leaving without waiting for a reply. When Aeneas reaches the, there's one more, there's two more images of women or, or figures who will not embrace Aeneas or cannot embrace Aeneas. When Aeneas reaches the, one is his father, when Aeneas reaches the Elysian fields and sees his father Anchises, the themes of speech and touch take yet another turn. After the Sibyl has revealed to Aeneas Apollo's prophecy of the vicious wars that await Aeneas and the Trojans before they confound the destined city, Aeneas answers the prophetess coolly, no surprises in all that you tell me, I foresaw them all, disinterested. But then he asks, one thing I pray for, may I have leave to come to the sight of my dear father and touch his face? Teach me the past, show me the sacred harbors. Through fires and with a thousand spears behind, I brought him on these shoulders, rescued him among, amid our enemies. Partner of my way, he endured with me. The Latin here is very touching because the he and the me and the I and the him are the illum and the ego and the like are side by side, touching each other in the Latin. Can't do that, of course, in English. Uh, partner of my way, he endured with me the high seas, the hard nights and days, and the menace from the sea and sky beyond the strength and lot of age, frail though he was. Indeed, he prayed this very prayer. He told me that I should come to you and beg it humbly, pity a son and a father. To which the Sibyl responds, the route down to the underworld. If the son is driven by compassion to be reunited with his lost father, a different amor lies behind Anchises' desire to have his son come down to the underworld. His first words, have you come at last? Has that pietas your father expected conquered the hard road? My cares did not deceive me. After many, after how many lands and how many seas do I now expect, accept you? And there again we have the closeness of I and you in the Latin, uh, ego and te, as we had the closeness between father and son, but there's going to be a, a difference. Aeneas is no less eager than, Anchises is no less eager than Aeneas for the reunion. Anchises' desire to see Aeneas swells up from a different spring than the amor that brought Aeneas down to the underworld. He says, Anchises, I have long desired to tell you about the future generations of Rome, to point them, to point them out to you in person, to enumerate the offspring of my line. The Latin here has a wonderful possibility for misreading. The word that uh, Anchises uses for offspring, or for the offspring of my line, is prolapse, a, pro, a prolace, prolace, prola maiorum. Prolace can mean child. It can even, if you stretch it, mean son. I wish to bring you down here to see my, and you could prolace, you could see, you could imagine the word, uh, the translation as for my son, for my son. But that is far from what Anchises means with this word. Rather, he uses it in its broader meaning for descendants, children of my children, even as abstract as race. I brought you down here to see 
Perlase, not son as son, but son as founder of race. Anchises calls Aeneas down to the underworld, and not in order to see his son as son, but to share with him a vision of offspring hundreds of years into the future, so that together they may rejoice in having founded Italy. Unlike the scenes with Dido and Creusa, father and son exchange words, but they are not moved by the same spirit. Anchises only has glee in thinking of the souls that will return to the upper world. Aeneas, uh, for Aeneas, this represents deep bewilderment. He says, must we imagine, Father, that souls have such a mad longing for the light? To Anchises' excited account about Romulus, to his account about the news about the future offspring Caesar Augustus, who was destined to bring the Golden Age back to Italy, to the report of Rome's proud gift to the world, to these famous lines, to guard nations by your imperium, to grant tradition onto peace, to show mercy to the conquered, to bring down the excessively proud. These, Rome, are your arts. To all of these revelations from Anchises, Aeneas says not a word. It is only when Aeneas sees the melancholic Marcellus that he addresses a word to his father. Who father is that one? One from our line? How noble he appears, but a black cloud about his head covers him in a sad shadow. Aeneas is moved to speak by despair and grief, not by Rome's golden destiny. The gulf between father and son can be expressed in Aeneas's repeated efforts to hold the shade of Anchises in his arms, lines which of course echo Creusa, and he reaches to embrace his father, uh, I want to let me hold your hand, let me embrace you, do not draw back. And of course, he can't embrace the weightless uh, Anchises. But Anchises seems oblivious to his son's gesture, like Creusa, who slips away, uh, and he seems to feel no discernible loss in the failure to embrace. One more failed embrace. In the early books of the poem, Aeneas is no more successful in his desires to embrace his mother, Venus. In the first scene with Aeneas in the poem, when he is limped to Libya, shore, Libyan shores with a few battered ships, Aeneas encounters Venus disguised as a girl from Sparta or from Thrace, as you may remember. His mother, anxious to prepare her son for the trials of Troy, tells Aeneas what he needs to know about Dido and about the city he is building. But when he plaintively begins to tell the girl of all the hardships he has endured on the seas, she impatiently cuts him off, much like Athena with Telemachus in Book One of the Odyssey, and tells him to follow the path to Carthage. Six books, Aeneas's despair is corporally expressed. Whether living or dead, the figures he loves are literally beyond his grasp. That long-awaited desire to touch finally comes to Aeneas. And it comes to him only in a line, in book eight. Coming down from heaven, that's the, uh, when he gets the shield. Coming down from heaven, his mother gives her son the new shield. 
Here are the gifts I promised, forged by my husband's craft. As she spoke, she swept to her son's embrace. One line, but after all Aeneas has been through, hardly an idle detail. And place the shining arms before his eyes. Why the embrace here? Aeneas does not have to reach out for his mother. Now she comes to him in her full divine form and takes him in her arms when he is prepared to carry the shield that bears on it the history of Rome from Anchises to Augustus, the shield culminating in Augustus's victory over Antony and Cleopatra at the Battle of Actium. Of history, the narrator points out that Aeneas comprehends not at all. All, and the narrator says, all these images on Vulcan's shield, his mother's gifts, were wonders to Aeneas. Knowing nothing of the events themselves, he felt joy in their pictures, taking up upon his shoulder all the destined acts and fame of his descendants. Joy has moved a long way from its erotic beginnings in Book 4. The making of that shield includes, interestingly, the most ironic scene, the, erot the most erotic scene of the poem, and might appear to complicate the idea of a suppressed amor in association with Roma. In order to stir Vulcan to make the shield, Venus has employed her ever-restless sexuality. But as we shall see from the erotic beginnings of the shield in Aeneas's bedroom, in Venus's bedroom, to Aeneas's rejoicing in things unknown, Amor is desexualized, to use a Freudian term, dried or bent from its primary and passionate nature, and redirected to an acceptable constrained cultural form. More sex goddess than tutelary protectress of Rome, at the beginning, Venus is described as rousing sexual flames and a reluctant husband. Uh, the lines go this way. She passed her, so, her snow-white arms about him on this side and that, and coaxed, in him, and coaxed him with her caressing embrace. And suddenly, as always, he caught the flame. The familiar glow penetrated into his marrow and sped down his quivering bones like the lightning crack which will sometimes dart gleaming and sparkling through storm clouds burst apart by the thunder flash. Its partner knew it. She was well aware of her own loveliness and pleased at her trick that the father conquered by an eternal love yield to her. But these sexual fires become redirected first into the smelting fires that Vulcan stirs in his furnace to make the arms, and then into the magical flames that shoot forth from the arms themselves. Venus laid the radiant arms under an oak tree before Aeneas. He gloried in the gift and could not gaze his full as he admired each of the pieces, the helmet shooting forth flames. The Latin there is extreme, it echoes the flames that were shooting in Vulcan's marrow. In her ultimate transfer from problematic sexual energy to the sign of the divine plan and world historical destiny, the flames reappear on the shield itself in its climactic scene. 
this time as a fire bursting forth from Augustus's forehead, depicting his and Rome's victory over Antony and Cleopatra. Augustus, standing high on his quarterdeck, led the Italians into battle, having with him the Senate and populace, the household gods and the great gods. Gaily his forehead shot forth twin flames, and on his head dawned the father's star. As such, far from the initial flames that penetrated Vulcan's marrow, now the flames echo those which sprouted from Ascanius's head in Book Two, as a divine sign that Aeneas and his family are to flee Troy. And these flames also anticipate the flames that will shoot forth from Aeneas's own head in Book Ten, when he, like Augustus at Actium, will stand high on the quarterdeck and sail the boat up the Tiber River to save the day for the Trojans and Evander's people. These are now divine flames, the mark not of passion, but of destiny. The image of Augustus and Rome on the shield represents both Augustus and Rome in their most idealized form. Rather than a figure who destroys the Republic, Augustus is presented as having the support of the Senate and the people, Senatus et Populus, as well as the household gods and the Olympians fighting for Italy. Religion, politics, and the social classes all in harmony. Propaganda is nowhere more flagrant in the Aeneid. Actium is portrayed as if it were a foreign war, not a civil war. Rome against Egypt rather than Augustus against Antony. Civilization against Eastern barbarism. Male order against the threatening passions of an Egyptian queen, as if Cleopatra were another African and Semitic Dido, and Antony a wayward Aeneas in Carthage. Venus's initial sexual flames, now transfigured into an image of divine order, are seen defeating base culture-destroying female eroticism as personified in Cleopatra Dido and may be further read as a sign of Aeneas having conquered his former self at Carthage. Contrary to the typical pattern in the Aeneid where sexual passion destroys fragile civilization, in Book 8, Venus's erotic flames in a Neoplatonic manner have engendered idealized history and beget a, a shield shouldered by a person who has forsaken personal joy, devoting himself instead to a distant world that he little comprehends. Her sexual embrace of Vulcan leads to her non-erotic embrace of Aeneas when he accepts the shield, while Venus's extramarital sexual encounters in all cases in mythology, result in pregnancy. If you remember in the Odyssey, when she's caught by her husband in bed with Ares, they have a child. Aeneas, uh, Ares and Aphrodite have a child. Charmingly in Greek mythology, that child is Harmonia. And Apollo, if you remember Poseidon in that scene, Poseidon is the one who frees, finally, uh, Aphrodite from the, um, from the chains. And in gratitude for that freedom, for that release, Aphrodite sleeps with Poseidon, and they have several children. And remember that also in that scene, 
Hermes says to Apollo, I wish I were in that, caught in that same predicament. Well, in gratitude, Aphrodite sleeps with, with Hermes. And they have a child, the Hermaphrodite. But Venus, or Aphrodite, has no child with her husband. She is never the mother of a child with her husband Vulcan, at least in regards to most myths. Yet in this book, Virgil suggests a different form of progeny. Aeneas calls Venus Diva Chiatrix, divine creator, or mother, when he anticipates the coming of the shield, an extremely rare epithet for her. Another time in the Aeneid. And Vulcan is called Pater, father, when he leaves his bed to start making the shield. The passionate lovemaking begets, as it were, the shield, primal sensuality sublimated before our eyes into a socialization of amor that might recall Freud. But unlike Freud, this is a socialized eros that is married to, not in opposition of, war. The shield is both an instrument for war and a sign of Rome as a story of war. Standing with Augustus on the quarterdeck is Mars, the god of war, marshalling the Italian forces. From Aeneas's shouldering of his father out of Troy in book two, to the shouldering of the shield in book eight, and from his failure to embrace his father in Chises in the underworld, to the fulfillment of his long desire to embrace, his long, de his long desire of embrace, uh, fulfilled by Aeneas, uh, Venus, the epic has moved from mortal father to divine mother, and from Troy to a cosmic creative force identified with civilization and to also with bloodshed and war. We might see this motif of embrace leading to a model of Freud's cultural development in complete ascendancy, having won the disputed ground, uh, displacing the egoistic. But the rewriting re of Amor into the service of the higher principles of civilization is hardly an easy or tidy enterprise, nor does the Aeneid pretend that it is. On the contrary, the brute forces of Roman history as presented in the poem and the violence of the Trojans' war against the native inhabitants of Italy are, for those who want to idealize the image of Rome, bound to be something of an embarrassment. A permanent peace between pressing passions and cultural constraints is as elusive for Virgil as it is for Freud. The love of country can itself become an illness when Aeneas describes Rome's future leaders, he pauses for a moment when he comes to Lucius Junius Brutus, legendary liberator of Rome. This is in book six. The legendary liberator of Rome who overthrew the Tarquin kings and establishes the Republic. He's the one who establishes, is the first consul in the Republic, one of the first two. This is what Anchises says to Aeneas. Do you wish to see the Tarquin kings and the arrogant spirit of the avenging Brutus and see the sacred rods of office regained? Brutus will be the first to win consul's authority, imperium, and the savage axes 
And when his sons start a new war, he will kill his sons on behalf of beautiful liberty. Unhappy man, however future generations may judge his deed. Love of country, amor patria, the same phrase as in book four that we started with. Love of country will conquer Brutus. And, Virgil adds, the limitless passion for fame. And here passion is with the verb cupido, the noun cupido. The selfish, so we have this love of country and this passion for frame, fame and the violation or the, the destruction of what is really the most crucial bond in the poem, that is the father-son bond. The selfless emotional impulse of amor patria is inextricably linked with the dark, self-regarding, craving for fame. Cupido in the Aeneid almost always hints at sinister and irrational self-will. Brutus's ferocity is, Virgil asks us to see, demanded and justified as a profound level of amor patria. The love of country requires him to kill his children as, he, as it protects beautiful liberty, the republic. But it is also savage, dark, and unhappy. What notion of Rome can absorb and endure Brutus's savage axes. This isn't the only love of praise that ends in terrible bloodshed and war. Battle, the war at, 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 in Italy begins this way. Inflamed by a love of exceptional praise, Aeneas' own son is driven to kill a stag, the death of which Imminently, immediately sets ablaze the passion for war between the Trojans and the Latins. The animal in question has a peculiar status, neither quite of the wild nor of the tame world, and is surely a symbol of the ancient beauty in the Italian landscape that the intrusion of the Trojans will destroy forever. Here's how the stag is described. There was a stag, a beauty, with a great spread of antlers taken before weaning from a doe and brought up tame by boys as by their father, Turris, the chief herdsman to the king and warden of his wide estates. Their sister, Sylvia, had trained the stag to follow her commands, teaching him, tending him with every care. She would wreathe his horns with garlands, groom him, bathe him in a spring of limpid water, Placid under her hand, accustomed to the table of his mistress, the stag would roam the forest, then return, however late at night, to the gate he knew. The girl, as her name Sylvia suggests, moves, uh, effort, moves effortlessly between the human and the natural world, as the stag is as much a part of the human realm Forms wreathed in ceremonial garlands, bathed in human fashion, accustomed to the table, accustomed to Sylvia's commands, imperium, as a stag is at home in the forest. They appear to live in a pre-sexual world. The girl, a soar, or sister, in company with boys, pueri, and the arrival of the stag late at night into the girl's bed, a prepubescent bond. The humans live at peace with nature, at a time when the distinctions between the civilized and the natural world had little meaning, 
a time before gates were closed to keep things out or shut them in. The idyllic harmony between the human and the natural is also reflected in the social order of the Latins. When their king Latinus describes to Aeneas how his race reaches back to Saturn in the Golden Age, he speaks of a community that lives without the needs of laws. Know that our Latins come of Saturn's race, that we are just, not by constraint or laws, but spontaneously and by habit of our ancient god. The arrow which kills the stag drives through the buck's groin, a sign that no doubt would please Freudians, a sexual wound that destroys forever a childlike innocence between human beings and nature and initiates the rule of law that will mark the new order. Now in the chase, Ascanius, passionate for the honor of the kill, let fly a shaft from his bent bow. Electo's guidance did not fail his hand or let him shoot amiss. And the arrow, whizzing loud, whipped, um, whipped on to pierce the belly and groined. Mortally wounded, the swift deer made for home and the farm buildings groaning. He found his stall and coated with dark blood, he filled the house with piteous cries. Here a sexual wound does not signify the conquering of an irrational passion destructive of civilization and providential order. Rather, it brings to a close a dreamlike beauty and prepares for further bloodshed as the native Italians abandon their armor of the plow, as Virgil describes their former peace for war. What notion of Rome could absorb and justify such destruction? But pre-Roman Italy is also the home of Electo, whom Juno, in her sustained rage against Aeneas and the Trojans, summoned up from the infernal dark where the dark sisters have their place. A creatress of grief, Electo is one of those who clearly loves wars, horrors, outbursting wrath, treachery, and recriminations with all their harms. She is a monster hated even by her own father Pluto and by her own Tartarian sisters. So many are the continents which she assumes, so ferocious are her aspects, and such a cluster of countless black snakes sprouts from her head. Like Sylvia and the stag, she is equally part of the pre-Roman Italian landscape, and in fact reaches the underworld through a cave in the valley of Amsoctus in central Italy. This caricature of, of feminine evil inflicts her poison on Latinus's wife, Amata, a name clearly derived from Amor and a sign of love's evil potential. Straightway, Electo, charged with her gorgon poisons, trailed, traveled to the tall palace of the Laurentine ruler in Latium, and there she lay in wait noiselessly at the entrance to the rooms of Queen Amata. Amata was already in a feverish turmoil with a woman's anxiety at the arrival of the Trojans and a woman's rage at the planning, at the wedding plan for Turnus. Tearing from her metal blue hair one snake, the evil goddess flung it at Amata and sent it creeping into her bosom and then deep into her heart so that by this magic she should fall violently mad and throw all the palace into confusion. Amata's transformation downward into bestial form is obvious and nothing 
and nothing in the old ways of Italy can stop that decline. Nor is Italy able to withstand her force once released. Latinus assaulted like a sea cliff when a great sea storm comes to shatter its winds on it. He shuts himself away and drops the reins of rule over the state. In Latinus's impotence to withstand this other side of Italy, he proves to be the counterpole to Aeneas, who withstands the storm clouds of Dido and love, and the counterpole to Augustus, who in capacity as Rome's leader is able to shut unholy furor, Electo's spiritual cousin within the gates of war. The former Italy intermixed with golden age, simplicity, and underworld evil gives way to the new order. And in Caesar's vision of that new order, glorious Rome shall equal her empire with the earth and her spirit with Olympus. She is blessed in her brood of men. Roma becomes pregnant. Roma Felix Proli, the same proles that was used, that Anchises used, offspring. Uh, Rome happy in her offspring. Even, uh, Virgil says, as the mother goddess Cybele, wearing her crown of towers, is blessed in her offspring of gods. Hap Felix Roma, happy Rome, as a kind of maternal amor, pregnant with mortals, as Cybele is pregnant with gods. She will be on earth what Cybele is in the sky. Finally, under Augustus and the renewed rule of law, the new Aeneas and the new Romulus will bring back Condit, an old, uh, the age of gold to Latium, to the land where Saturn reigned in early times. With Augustus, history turns back into myth. Quote again from Jupiter's prophecy in Book One, I set no limits, world or time, and period without end. Civilization now defined by laws will chain the furies of Italy's past at the cost of its spontaneous harmony with nature and at the cost of love experience it. So the golden image of Rome. But the world, but the word Anchises uses for Augustus's bringing back the golden age, condit, the, word, the Roman word for founding cities, as seen in the opening lines of the Aeneid. Aeneas shall be tossed on the seas and suffer much in war until he founds the city, Condoret Urban. That's the same word the narrator uses to describe Aeneas planting the sword in Turnus's belly at the end of the poem. He buried or founded his blade full under Turnus's heart in a rage. Ferum averso sum pectore condit veritas. Rome as embodied in Aeneas has not escaped from the fury associated with the pre-Roman landscape, nor are all its flames divine as they were on the shield. This sudden upsurge of fury and killing Turnus is not the first time that Aeneas has submitted to rage as a means to pacification. Earlier in the same book, this is book 12, the last book, when the treaty between the Trojans and the Latins is broken, Aeneas, quote, terrible, stirred up savage slaughter with no discrimination and flung loose all the reins of wrath. 
Aeneas's slaughter described by the same word, sawum, savage slaughter, the same words used for Brutus's savage axes, which he kills his own sons. As Freud wrote in Civilization and Its Discontents, quote, the fateful question for the human species seems to me to be whether and to what extent their cultural development will succeed in mastering the disturbance of their communal life by the human instinct of aggression and self-destruction. My friend in Vietnam, faced with savagery and grief, like Daedalus, faced with the grief of having lost his son Icarus, collapses and is incapable of transmuting the brutality, pain, and loss into meaning and continuation of life. Rome, too, must acknowledge its own savagery and grief, the loss of Marcellus, the violence of the legendary Brutus, the horror of having destroyed the idyllic world of Sylvia and the stag, and ultimately the founding savagery of Aeneas in killing Turnus. Rome is able to face that brutality and failure and absorb it in its enduring but troubled vision of itself as a restored golden age. As Anchises means to convey to his son in the underworld, the struggle in founding Rome is worth the effort, not because Rome has a pretty history. It doesn't. Rather, Rome is the place, if any place in the world is, where society and the individual in society can work to tame the beast within. Both the end of Book 6, when Aeneas leaves the underworld through the gates of false dreams, in the end of Book 12, when Aeneas kills the suppliant Turnus in a fiery fury, leave open the possibility that the dream of civilization may be an illusion, just a fantasy, just a false dream. But it is no less important to see that Roma is the place, the psychic terrain, where the dream of civilization, if it could be called a dream, can be dreamt. It is a dream that can see at one and the same time a Rome which, through law, will be a permanent and beneficent influence on human history, and simultaneously a dream conscious of the effervescence of mortal aspirations. Thank you.